Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing how COVID-19 gave rise to food delivery robots and GTFO, It's Vegan, introduces an extensive line of vegan sashimi. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sydney Perlmutter, and Mira Nabolsi. Thank you all for coming today. Aisha, I'll pass it off to you so you can introduce our first topic for discussion. Sounds good. Thanks, Sarah. So after co-developing one of the world's most widely used COVID-19 vaccines, Pfizer now has an antiviral medication to treat COVID-19 as well. And it's not just any antiviral. This is actually an oral formulation. And recently, uh, they released data showing that this oral pill could cut the risk of hospitalization and death by 89% among COVID-19 patients. This new antiviral drug is called Paxlovid, and it's a combination of a protease inhibitor and another antiviral called Ruritonavir, which is used to treat HIV. And this is among the most, sorry, this is among the first orally administered antivirals against SARS-CoV-2 as other authorized or approved antivirals, such as remdesivir, are administered through intravenous injection. Now, this is not the only uh, orally administered antiviral because the news from Pfizer comes just on the heels of Merck having won authorization for its COVID-19 oral antiviral molnupiravir in the UK. And that has made, that authorization made it the world's first oral pill to treat the infection, Um, the first authorized oral pill rather. And Merck developed that antiviral pill in collaboration with Ridgeback Biotherapeutics and Sharp and Dome. And that antiviral was shown to reduce the risk of COVID-19-related hospitalizations and deaths by 50%. And that data was released at the beginning of October. So the authorization in the UK followed shortly thereafter that, about a month later. Now, Pfizer's results for its oral antiviral for COVID-19 comes from an interim analysis of a phase two, phase three trial. And it was a randomized double-blind study of non-hospitalized adult patients with COVID-19 who were at risk of developing severe disease. Now, the efficacy data was so strong that an independent data monitoring committee, as well as consultation with the FDA, prompted Pfizer to actually discontinue further enrollment in this study. The interim analysis was based on data from about 1,200 participants, and initially Pfizer planned to enroll 3,000 people in its study. The company says that it plans to submit the data to the FDA as part of its ongoing rolling submission for its application for emergency use authorization of the oral antiviral. 
So the treatment pack consisting of the uh, combination drug is given twice a day for five days and within five days of symptoms onset. Now the interim analysis of the trial data showed that it uh, led to an 89% reduced risk of hospitalization or death from COVID-19 compared with placebo. And less than 1% of patients who received the treatment within three days of symptom onset had to be hospitalized compared with 7% in the placebo group. So basically, this shows that it prevented patients from progressing to severe disease requiring hospitalization, um, and that was significant significant compared to the placebo group. There were no deaths in the drug group, so in the Paxlovid group, while seven deaths occurred among those that were hospitalized um, and that had received the placebo. And the results were similar for the drug combination given within five days as opposed to three days of symptoms appearing. Most side effects were mild and comparable to those um, that had received placebo. And so a lot of people are saying, including, of course, the chairman and CEO of Pfizer, that this news and that this drug could be a real game changer in the global efforts to halt the devastation of this pandemic, um, as he said in a quote uh, that I obtained from a statement from the company. And so really, this new oral antiviral adds to the arsenal of COVID-19 tools that we have, in addition to, of course, uh, the preventative approach of uh, having vaccines, but now we also um, are building more treatments in that arsenal um, to have, which is, I think, very promising and also much needed. Just wanted to get your thoughts about this, and it's pretty exciting that it's the first, um, one of the first oral um, antivirals that we were seeing. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing here, right, is that... um kind of convenience factor that somebody doesn't need to be hospitalized to be treated with an intravenous um, injection for for, um, COVID. Uh, So this is something that would just be prescribed and and people would take it home, I guess, right? If it's an oral, you know, pill, I think that's really great. Mm. Um, And I don't know if you mentioned this, but I I think it'll be um, interesting to see what the cost looks like, if, if they'll um, make it pricier than some of the intravenous drugs because of that um, convenience factor. Uh, I think that'll be, you know, potentially a, a barrier for use, but otherwise definitely uh, makes sense to keep people out of hospital if they don't need to be there. My first thought on this was, um, can it's applicate? Can it be used, um, you know, for for to treat other things as well? Um, if this is the first of its kind, do you think we'll be seeing it, um, you know, the the technology sort of apply to uh, other disease areas? Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the drugs in this kind of combination treatment, really, as I mentioned, is used for the treatment of HIV. Mm. So antivirals are really sort of, I think the next generation of antivirals are really uh, showing a lot of promise for various uh, viral infections. And I think there's a lot of research in the area at the moment. So this is definitely um, just part of that, you know, that ongoing work in, in the area. And did you come across anything in your research, Aisha, about the um, types of people that were included in the trial? So um, was it mostly unvaccinated individuals or, mm, or good point. Um, yeah. was it vaccinated people with breakthrough infections? I would think it's 
probably the former, more likely. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I don't know if there would be any, you know, efficacy differences between those two groups, but I suppose it's mostly now unvaccinated individuals that are um, becoming infected. And so I would think that, yeah. Yeah, I didn't come across any specifics as to the vaccination status of the participants. I don't think that there was any uh, inclusion or exclusion criteria around okay. that. Um, it was just a randomized study, so it, it didn't mention that. But that's an excellent point, mm. um, whether or not, you know, are, are these breakthrough infections or are they just um, occurring among uh, unvaccinated people? Mm. And we talked yeah. in a recent episode, too, about... Um, you know, will people or are people currently more open to being, you know, treated for mm. a COVID infection as opposed to yeah. getting the preventative mm. vaccine? And I think when it comes to maybe just popping a pill, maybe the answer I would think would be yes. What, what do you all think? I would definitely think that the only yeah. exception um, is in this case is that it's Pfizer. And I feel like people, if you're already anti-vax mm. or you do not want to take a vaccine, I feel like you will just associate the company with the medication and then just be mm. a little maybe averse mm. to taking anything that they may offer. Um, that mm -hmm. was, That's just my initial thought. I don't know if there is a correlation there, yeah. but I feel like the mistrust also comes from the companies who... Uh, produce the vaccine as well. So maybe mm. there would be some resistance. I actually, I actually feel the opposite. I think people that are like um, anti-vaxxed or don't want to take the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, could now say, well, I don't need to because there's a pill. So if I get sick, then I could just take the pill. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think that now maybe now with boosters coming around, the pill will be um, more popular than the booster, maybe. I don't know. That's just how I see things going. Mm. It's like mm. uh, we don't need to inject ourselves anymore. Like, you know, in case we get sick, I will take this pill. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's where my mind goes. Mm. Yeah, and even before like the vaccines were authorized, approved, I'm, remdesivir was around, and before it was authorized, I remember like last summer there were people who were kind of in the anti-vax camp. They were okay with taking remdesivir, and that is injected. Hmm. That, you know, so like I think I yeah I I mentioned this in our previous conversation. It's very interesting to me that sort of um, thinking and that psychology around why a drug is often preferred to a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I think it just comes down to one is preventative and it's like, well, I'm not sick. So why should I put something in my body unnecessarily, even though it's a preventative, but um, it's just hard yeah. for, for some people to, to register with that or to sort of reconcile that. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Remdesivir. It's yeah, amazing to me how before it was even authorized, people were requesting for it and were like, you know, give this to me. I want mm -hmm. it. And, um, all of other kinds of uh, medications that are also given intravenously. So by injection. I also wonder what the process would be to, um, when this does become available, um, have it prescribed. Um, you know, there must be a it must be relatively quickly to get this mm. prescription. Uh, I'm not sure if you'd have to prove that you do have COVID enable in order to 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 be prescribed um, the pill, or you know, it must be a quick uh, process. Though I'm not sure if if there's anything on that yet. Yeah, because it, they do say that it's um, 
uh, for treating COVID uh, within five days of symptom onset. Mm-hmm. So that means um, you probably have to have a molecular test, so a PCR test combined with uh, clinical symptoms. So those are kind of the two measures that are used currently to diagnose uh, COVID. And very interestingly, I, we just had a webinar this morning actually about talking about CT values for PCR tests for the diagnosis of uh, COVID. Hmm. And there's been a lot of discussion around that because some people are like, oh, well, these CT values are, are too high. So basically the lower the CT value on a molecular test, um, the greater the presence of virus you have. Mm. It doesn't necessarily correlate with viral load per se, but um, it just shows that you were able to amplify viral material in your sample quicker. So you have a, you required lower cycles in the PCR test to get there. Um, and so, but we've been seeing patients, in, you know, in that webinar, they had case studies where patients had CT values as high as 33, 34. And, you know, working in a lab, we kind of knew that we're back when I was doing, you know, kind of research in the lab, those values would kind of be like, okay, that's not really a positive test. But here it's like they're combining that that CT information along with uh, the manifestation of clinical symptoms. Mm. And they were explaining how, um, again, the PCR test is just a snapshot in time, right? So that person may have had a high CT value on that day, but if they come in two, three days or within 10 days, that might change. And so it's hard to set a cutoff Mm. for what CT value should be taken as a positive test. I know I went off on a huge tangent, but I thought it was so interesting. And it's also relevant to the discussion as to um, a lot of misinformation out there about what is a test positivity and how do you actually know you have COVID for sure? Because I know a lot of people was like, oh, well, they went in for a test, they were negative, but were they really negative? Then you have false positives and all of these issues around that, around that in addition to the CT values. So to answer your question, I guess, <laughs> Sydney, um, yeah, it would ha- they are saying that you need to have symptoms. Um, the treatment would be given to people who have symptoms within five days, and then along with the PCR test positivity. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, mm. it's the combination. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, or um, you know, I just have a question about those CT values. So the CT values are globally recognized as the same value. Is every yeah, lab no. does like does every lab work under the same kind of model or like numbers? No. Or is it different? Oh, really? No, because there are different tests, right, made by different companies, different assays. And so there is variation between, you know, a test kit made by, let's say, Kyogen versus a test kit made by, oh, what's the other one we used to use in the lab? Uh, something laboratory. But anyway, different companies, right? So there, yeah. are, there is some variation in, um, in terms of the CT, those uh, cycle thresholds. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's why you can't compare, necessarily compare um, test, uh, test result from one kit or one assay with another one. So that complicates things even more. Oh, so that's okay. why it's, yeah. So you have oh, internal standardizations and internal controls that you use in within a test to determine, you know, positivity or uh, and things like that and normalize your values. But um, it's difficult to compare like absolute values between tests. So mm-hmm. a 10 on one test may be an indicative of positivity versus you might get a 30 for that same sample using another kit. Mm. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So w- would there be a scenario where you're, you know, positive with one test and then negative with another? Mm. Well, you see, it's like, 
you know, what are you using as your negative as a CT value, right? Mm -hmm. So I think each center, each lab, based on the assay they're using, they've kind of determined what would uh, be a positive result. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was just like the same across all no, the tests. Oh, no. no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that was the entire discussion um, sort of in that webinar, which is really interesting. So. That is really interesting. And I think really relevant because that changes um, the the treatment options in the course going forward for that particular yeah, patient, that snapshot exactly. and that um, CT threshold. Did the speakers yeah. talk at all about um, the potential of testing patients over time, like maybe testing over the span of three days and taking an average or something with the same test kit? Mm -hmm. Or is that just too, you know, cost prohibitive right now or, or time consuming? Absolutely. And that's what they have been doing oh, in, in some wow, cases okay. where they they haven't been able to confirm per se, uh, 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 Di or haven't been able to confirm positivity via PCR, mm. but let's say the patient is exhibiting symptoms yeah. of COVID. So they would, you know, do repeat tests within, let's say, a period of 10 days mm. to see whether those values change and then so to give the, that kind of positivity. So, yeah. All right. So moving from that COVID-19 story, I'd like to talk about uh, the FDA approval for a new eye drop to treat presbyopia. So as people get older, you might notice that a lot of people start experiencing problems with reading due to blurriness in their near vision. And this condition is called presbyopia. Now, I was talking about in this article, instead of having to reach for a pair of prescription reading glasses, Abvi has come out with an eye drop formulation called Vuity, which could help uh, in correcting farsightedness as the FDA granted approval to the eye drop late last week. Vuity is a 1.25% pilocarpine HCL ophthalmic solution made by Abvi owned Allergan. Now, with the approval, Vuity actually becomes the very first eye drop approved for this condition. So, presbyopia is a common eye condition that begins around the age of 40 or so and progressively worsens until age 65. It's characterized by difficulties in focusing on nearby objects and also um, difficulties in Let's say you're reading something and then you place it further away and then you try to bring it back. So again, having difficulty focusing when you bring or when you change distances um, on objects. And this is caused by a loss of flexibility in the lens of the eye. And the flexibility of the eye lens allows it to change shape to focus light onto the retina. And then with age, this elasticity is lost. So age-related blurry near vision um, or presbyopia affects about 128 million people in the U.S., which is almost half of all American adults. And so far, the only treatment option for the condition has been corrective lenses, such as glasses, bifocals, and contact lenses. Now, Vuity offers patients a daily eye drop treatment that provides temporary relief from the blurry, blurry vision associated with the condition. Vuity makers say that the formula is fast acting and works as quickly as 15 minutes after its administration, and it lasts for up to six hours. 
Importantly, it, it improves near and intermediate vision without affecting distance vision. Viewity will be available by prescription. So Viewity's active ingredient is an anticholinergenic uh, uh, agonist that is used to treat elevated pressure in the eye caused by glaucoma or other eye conditions. So that ingredient is used to, to treat um, those types of eye uh, conditions. So using a proprietary technology called FAST, Avri created the formulation of pilocarpine that was specifically optimized for presbyopia. And this formulation allows for rapid adjustment to the physiologic pH of the tear film. Avvi says that Viewity also uses the eye's own ability to reduce pupil size, improving near vision without affecting the distance vision, as I mentioned. And so Viewity received the FDA approval based on data from two key phase three clinical trials called Gemini 1 and Gemini 2. And they assessed the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of the eye drop for the treatment of presbyopia. Viewity met the primary endpoints uh, of both studies with significant improvement in near vision in low light conditions without affecting distance vision compared with placebo. So a greater proportion of presbyopia patients that were given Viewity were able to read three additional lines on a reading test or a reading chart three hours after treatment up to at day 30 compared with the placebo. And so the difference was were 31% in the Gemini 1 trial versus 8% uh, placebo in that same trial. There were no serious adverse events uh, observed in participants that received Viewity in either of the two trials. And the most common adverse events were reported at low frequency, meaning less than 5% or so. And they included redness of the eye and headache. So although this is the first um, approval for an eye drop to treat presbyopia, a biotech company based in New York called Inovia also recently uh, announced positive trial, trial results for its drug device combo called Microline for the treatment of presbyopia. So that also involves delivery of small doses of uh, pilocarpine into the eye using the company's um, OptiJet dispenser, I believe it's what it's called. So yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this uh, new uh, approval. Uh, you know, it's pretty exciting as well because this is, again, the first eye drop for this particular condition. I didn't even think it'd be possible to create an eye drop that would correct your vision like this. Right. Um, I think people are just so used to requiring, you know, as you say, corrective lenses. Um, mm. So you said that this formulation lasts for about six hours. Do you think yep. that it'll be a complete um, alternative to corrective lenses? Or do you see this more as like... I don't know, the type of person who normally wears glasses but switches to contacts when they're like going out or something like that. You know what I mean? Is it going to be something? Yeah. Although I guess it's also a daily drop. So maybe it only works if you're taking it, you know, every day. I'm just like curious to think, you know, would someone using this drop be able to almost completely get rid of their glasses? I think it really would depend on 
people's lifestyles, right? Because if people are used to, let's say, just having their reading glasses always on them and they think it's convenient to just slip them mm -hmm. on, it's fine. Uh, or the alternative here with this new eye drop would be that they would keep the eye drop in their pocket. And I know a lot of people, like, let's say, with dry eyes, they're constantly putting eye drops into into their mm -hmm. eyes. So they're already used to the, um, those kinds of um, approaches or formulation. So I think it really will depend person to person. And it's really interesting because I am nearsighted and, you know, I'm projecting that when I get older, I'm going to, you know, have press biopia as most, you know, adults do like my parents do. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm going to have to get bifocals and, you know, stuff like that. So I think this would be pretty cool for, for having to, um, you know, mitigate the need for additional corrective lenses. That's a good point. I think it'll yeah. also probably depend on the degree of your presbyopia. Like maybe if you have very mm -hmm. mild um, presbyopia, it'll be, you know, easier for you to just to kind of take these drops to improve your vision enough. But maybe if you're reliant on like a very, a very strong prescription um, you mm -hmm. know, maybe it won't be good enough to, in, to improve your vision, but yeah, yeah, I think the market too. size for this is incredible. Like you were it's saying, huge, what, like yeah. half of all adults or something in the U.S.? Like that's yeah. that's pretty giant. So, yeah, I think this is so cool. And I think it would probably encourage people to um, become better at putting in eye drops <laughs> if they yeah. could see results. Um, but yeah, I it, part of me is like, you know, what problem is this solving that glasses aren't um yeah I don't know if if maybe I'm just not thinking about it on like a wider like broader spectrum but I I don't know like what would be the advantage of it over traditional glasses I actually think it's huge because I can speak from personal experience where my parents, for whatever reason, it's like both me and my sister have had classes for our nearsightedness since we were like 10, okay? And then the day they, you know, had to get glasses, they were just so averse to it. They were like, no, we don't want it. They put it off for so <laughs> long and they just said, oh, we just don't look good in it. I don't like glasses. I'm like, hello, like your kids have been wearing glasses since they were like kids. And so it's, it's strange because... It, it is a vanity thing for some people, or I don't know. They they just uh, pe some people just don't like glasses, um, and that's why a lot of people do opt for uh, laser eye corrective mm. surgery, right? Mm -hmm. For uh, stuff like what I have, and um, so I think it's going to be huge because there are you might you may not know, but there are a lot of people who just dislike glasses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna say as a glasses person myself mm -hmm. I despise my glasses <laughs> I literally want to do everything possible not to wear my glasses mm -hmm. and like for some reason I don't qualify for a laser eye surgery oh. so something like this where I don't have to put glasses or even you know contact lenses that bother me yeah. a lot mm -hmm. I hate you those, know yeah. yeah exactly this is this is yeah this is amazing like glasses I feel like change the um, features of your face a lot you know, and then like all, whenever you take your glasses off, people are like, oh, my God, I don't recognize you without glasses. I know. And things all like of that. those it's comments. Like, it's like imagine <laughs> never, never having to have those comments ever again. That <laughs> sounds like a pretty great world. So this is pretty um, awesome. Yeah, this, because uh, I, th yeah, it's a great point because like for nearsightedness, you, you had like LASIK options, right? But then for 
um, farsightedness, this presbyopia, there wasn't any, there was no such, you know, um, non-glasses or non-contact kind of um, treatment or solution for it. So I think this is pretty cool. I'm just waiting for the day that we can have eye drops for like <laughs> stuff for like uh, farsightedness or nearsightedness, sorry, mm-hmm. like what I have and what Mira, you got, you probably have. Yeah, I, I feel the same way I think as you, Mira. I don't, you know, I'm used to my glasses, but it's like a nuisance to have to remember to put them mm-hmm. on. And um I have astigmatism and I think they did develop like a type mm. of LASIK for astigmatism, but uh, which is like the the shape of your eyeball is not perfectly spherical, so that's what's changing your your vision. Um, but I'm also not a candidate for for LASIK, and so you know I've tried contacts. I also feel like they're uncomfortable, particularly the you know astigmatism ones. They're kind of a different um, shape, or I think they're thicker or something. Um, mm. And yeah, it'd be nice to be like free of of glasses like I have prescription sunglasses so then I'm like I kind of need those like to drive and stuff it's like a whole other thing there's also the expense of it too right so I wonder if something like this drop I'm assuming I mean it's a daily treatment so it's it's a pretty long term um, Mm -hmm. commitment as well it's not like you take it for a course and you're cured or something Um, but I wonder if uh, people will have better drug coverage often often um with insurance plans you'll have like better drug coverage than vision coverage and so maybe it'll be less expensive Mm, in the long term if this drug is covered by um, major health insurance plans um to get the eye drops then to need to get new glasses you know every few years which is a pretty big expense even if you're using your same frames um just getting those new lenses can really add up so yeah, again, as we usually say, I think it'll be interesting to see the pricing on, on this kind of drug. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how do you put a price on it? I, I picture them kind of aiming high um, because it seems like such a groundbreaking thing, genuinely. Um, but it'll it'll be interesting to see. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know how high they sh- would really aim because, you know, they also want to bring in people to... To, to use it. So yeah. I think they would have to kind of be smart about uh, where they would place their price. I wonder what they'll compare it to because it's sort of the first of its kind, it's you novel. know? Yeah, so like, first, I think yeah. that's also an interesting question. Like, how do they even come up with the pricing? Obviously, they want to recoup mm-hmm. their development costs, um, but you're right. They want to make sure it's not completely uh, out of the realm of possibility that that giant market size of of people, most of those people could afford it, um, particularly those with private insurance or, or, um, you know, public coverage. Uh, But, you know, it's different from like an over-the-counter saline drop, right? There's like a lot more that's gone into developing that. So it's, it's gonna be, gonna be pricier. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, well, that's the end of this episode of the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. 
To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.